Thanks for joining us on Battle Walks as we walk across the great battlefields of Europe. If you're enjoying the show, why not become a member? Every week, you'll receive exclusive bonus episodes available only to subscribers, and you can listen to all our episodes completely ad-free. Click on the link in the show notes to join us via ACAST+. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Matt McLaughlin. And I'm Pete Smith. We're battlefield historians who love nothing better than getting out and walking the ground where great battles in history took place. And now we'd like you to come with us. Every week, Battle Walks will take you to one of the great battlefields of Europe. As we walk the ground, we'll dig through the pages of history, we'll uncover the secrets of the battlefields, and most importantly, we'll tell the stories of the people who fought and died there. Welcome to Battle Walks. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Battle Walks. So today is one of our specials. I'm out and about again, uh, literally on the ground. Um, where are we? Well, we're in uh, uh, just above. We're actually in the village, but we're in a little village called Montcel. M-O-N-T-C-E-L. So perhaps a name that uh, many of you have not heard before. Um, we're in 1914, and the date is the 7th of September. Um, that's what we're going to be covering, and it's the the last cavalry charge by British lancers against German lancers. So this is the the the, uh, the last time that that happens, where British lancers actually charge German lancers. So I've just got out of the car, and uh, it's a bit drizzly at the moment. So I'm hoping it's going to ease off a little bit. It's middle of summer, so hopefully it's uh, it's going to clear up. Um, and we're standing on the high ground, uh, looking down into the valley. Um, there's a little small village in the distance we can see, and that's a village called Fretoy, uh, nestling amongst the trees. Um, Fretoy is a, a, commune in, a commune in the Seine uh, Maritime uh, Department, uh, part of the Ile-de-France region. Um, we're about 30 miles, uh, 48 kilometres outside of Paris, so near to, uh, uh, to Paris today. Um, if I raise my eyes and look uh, across the valley, uh, we can see a few houses of the hamlet of uh, Le Montcel, or just known as uh, Montcel in the war diaries and official histories. Uh, and we can see the open fields uh, beyond it. And that's where the, the actual action is going to take place. But of course, we're going to walk uh, across the, uh, the valley. Um, 
This is the date, the 7th of September 1914, is actually an, an interesting date. On the 6th, we start the Battle of the Marne, but really the British Army is still recovering from its very long retreat, uh, which started on the 23rd uh, of August outside the Belgian, Belgian city of Mons, uh, on a railway bridge over the mons uh, Condé Canal at Nimi. A uh, very famous action took place there, I'm sure one that we'll be covering in a, a podcast in the future. Um, and the retreat went on for 200 miles, 320 kilometres, uh, with most of the fighting taking place in the hot summer weather. So the time that we're looking at now, it's the end of that retreat, thank goodness, uh, and it's it's our 10, the counter-thrust, known as the Battle of the Marne, which began the day before, the 6th of September. So this is uh, our 10 to hold the Germans and to start to push them back, because as you will have gathered, they're fairly close to Paris, and that's their aim, is to, uh, to take uh, Paris. We're going to be talking about the 9th Lancers, uh, their cavalry, and uh, they are part of the 2nd Cavalry Brigade, and they're acting as their left flank guard to the cavalry division. Um, so uh, they're on the extreme uh, uh, left uh, of, the, of the division. And they're scouting ahead. That's their role, really, is to scout ahead and to, uh, to, to, to see where the Germans are. Because remember, we're in the early days of aerial reconnaissance, uh, the early days of, uh, of really that mechanised war. This is still a war of movement. So everybody is moving around and jostling for position, and we're not quite sure where the Germans are. Um, the village itself that we're uh, looking down into has a population of 167. Now that's uh, that's uh, about the same uh, size as my village, in fact slightly smaller than my village. Uh, and we're going to follow the road, the D75A, for those that are looking at, at maps or want to have a look at maps to see where we're going, into uh, the beautiful little village. So off we're, off we're going to set. We're going to leave the car, I'm going to lock the car up, I'm going to head down, uh, head down this gentle slope, winding road, flowers at the side of the road, the poppy uh, here and there so it's a, it's a be- this is a beautiful part very different to the Somme less rolling but it still is rolling and in fact it's still chalkland so we still have uh, an element of, uh, of chalk here as well um, and limestone because we're not that far away from the famous champagne uh, growing uh, area so as we walk down the road, uh, we're heading uh, t- into the village itself. Um, village is, is everybody's almost, it's everybody's idyllic uh, little French village. It's uh, whitewashed walls and, and rubble stone, uh, uh, whitewashed, sorry, whitewashed houses, rubble stone walls. We can see around shutters on the windows. It's, uh, it's a lovely little village. In fact, I've been here uh, several times and I don't think I've ever seen anybody. It's one of those quiet places. I suspect it's close to Paris. So a lot of these houses may be uh, weekend retreats for people that live and work in, uh, in Paris. Um, Lancers. So we'll have a chat as we're walking. We'll have a chat about uh, lancers and, and what that means. And well, it's almost archaic, isn't it? It's something we don't really think about in the uh, for the First World War. Is a man on a horse uh, with a lance. Uh, interestingly, reintroduced in 1909, it was felt that the shock, uh, the shock tactic, tactic of charging somebody with a lance in your hand, was still worthwhile to be to be revisited. So in 1909, they uh, they decided to uh, reissue. The lances uh, to uh, to the lancer units. Um, they're also armed with uh, the Lee Enfield SMLE uh, short magazine Lee Enfield, which you, uh, is the standard rifle for all of the uh, the British Army, uh, and they're carrying the uh, the 1908 cavalry uh, sword as well, uh, which is. Um, 
probably the best, not probably, is definitely the best cavalry sword that uh, was ever issued to the to the cavalry. It's basically a, a, a spearing weapon, a stabbing weapon, but it's a superb uh, sword for when, you, when you're mounted. So the, they've not just got the lances, they've got the swords and the rifles as well. The rifles will be carried in, in a, uh, like a bucket almost that uh, um, sits beside the saddle. And the um, the uh, obviously uh, the sword is in its uh, scabbard, uh, hanging from the the, the saddlers uh, as well. Um, so the officers they won't uh, they'll carry swords, but they won't carry lances. They will also have the Webley revolver, a standard service issue revolver. Uh, not all of them, of course. One of the things uh, of a British officer of this period is he can buy his own accoutrements if he wants to, so he may have a, a different type of pistol, but generally speaking, most of them are carrying the, the Webley. Um, so we're just in the village, walking through the, the village itself now, at the other side, and uh, there's a little stream that we're going to cross in there, and uh, a bridge going over it, and then we're going to start climbing uh, up the other side. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk uh, or read a little bit from a first-hand account by a gentleman called Frederick Coleman. Now, he's an interesting chap uh, in many ways. I'm just going to stop a second and get myself uh, still drizzling, so I get myself out the drizzle. Um, Frederick uh, Coleman was an American, and he'd uh, volunteered to come across uh, to Britain to help out in these uh, this early uh, stages of the of the war. So, what is he actually uh, helping out with? Well, he's he's going to offer his car, and he's going to offer his services as a as a driver. It's fascinating, isn't it? Not enough cars and and uh, and vehicles, and so these guys uh, via the Royal Automobile Club. They will become the Royal Automobile Club Volunteer Force 1914, because as you imagine, as the line stabilised and everything went static and the trenches were dug, then there was very little need for, for cars to be whistling around. But at this time, uh, he becomes the personal driver of the Brigadier, uh, of the 2nd Brigade of the Cavalry uh, here, and that's Brigadier General H.B. Uh, Delisle. Uh, who was commanding that 2nd Cavalry Brigade. So he's his driver. Uh, it's interesting, he, even though he volunteered and he's a volunteer driver, he obviously had, had some leeway to go out and do things himself. Uh, because at this point, so I'm going to be uh, reading his uh, one of his... Uh, he, he wrote a book after the war, or during the war, actually. It was published in 1916. Um, and he's obviously not with uh, the officer that he's supposed to be driving. He's doing his own thing. And as an American, remember, America is neutral. He can crisscross the lines. So actually... If he meets a German patrol, he can get out his passport and his other things. <laughs> Wouldn't necessarily save your life always, but he, he can and say, look, I'm an American, uh, I'm, uh, I'm just here uh, observing. And obviously he's taking notes, and this, uh, this is what, what he says. So uh, this is uh, Frederick as he drives up the slope that we're now walking up. So I'm going to head off again. The rain appears to have uh, eased off. So walking up the slope into this very small, uh, small village. Um, so this is his account. The fascination of it was like to run away with me when our own cavalry was chasing the German cavalry. Also, it was like to run away with my judgment. A car might get further forward than necessary, perhaps even further forward than was wise. Bang, bang. Two German shrapnel whiz over and beyond with a bang behind. Crash. One fell to the right between two squads of galloping troopers. The horses reared and shied, but not one fell. The second group rode through, white shell cloud, and, and dashed on. This would have been uh, the leading troop. So this is the one that's arriving in, in the village. That He's actually got almost to the village, just slightly ahead of, of, of the cavalry arriving. 
Rifle fire ahead, and bang, came a shell bursting over me, much too close. I went into the village of Montcel, and I were just literally standing outside the edge of the village of Montcel, to seek the protection of its buildings. Leaving the car, I passed up the wide street, desert- deserted, except by a dead German officer in front of a cottage, and gained the further edge of cluster of mean houses that composed the village. Now, this is a, a very small village. In fact, in Britain, we call it a hamlet. It's, uh, it's not even got a marry here, a, a, t- a village hall or anything. It's a, a, just a really a group of houses. So we're going to follow where he's actually just uh, bailed out of his car and, and ran into the village. And what he's trying to do is, obviously, he knows there's going to be an action here. There are German cavalry about, there are British cavalry about, and he's hoping he's going to see something very exciting. Oh, he's slightly worrying, I, I find. Um so we're now walking into the village, uh, just a, a, again, a few houses, a, a stone-built uh, wall. Now, this is interesting. This was what I was looking for, and I've obviously wrecked this before we've got here. Um, this stone-built wall that's on the right-hand side, uh, he actually had a, a photograph taken from that wall, uh, and I could see that it's the same wall. So this stone wall still exists, the one that was there in 1914. Um and then we, uh, Frederick finds himself in a, in a tricky situation. So I've just walked to the edge of the wall. I'm just going to walk a little bit further along it. So I'm going to lean lean on it. I know where to sit down here. I like to sit down normally. Okay, right. Leaning against, uh, against the wall now. So Frederick found himself in a tricky situation as the German cavalry are actually uh, are going to counterattack, uh, and uh, they force this first kind of uh, I suppose little group of cavalrymen, British cavalry, out uh, of the of the village again. And so he finds himself effectively almost in in what we would come to know in the future as no man's land. Um, so. Uh, He's observing from this position and he can see uh, some cavalry up to the left of the village. He can see, and this is the interesting part, he sees a, a third squadron of German cavalry coming towards the village from the north. Now these are in uh, ready to charge. These guys are lined out and they're crossing the, uh, the open, open land. So this is, uh, again, back to his account. Behind a friendly stone wall, I stopped and took out my glasses. The stubble stretched away towards a line of woods. So this is the, uh, the stubble from wheat. It's a wheat field. Um, uh, to the line of woods. Diagonally across the broad road that led north from the village came a line of horsemen. Magnificent. In the morning sun they rode, a solid line rising and falling with regular cadence, as though mechanically propelled, over one hundred of them, seeming double that number to me, were charging across the field. On they came like machine-made waves on a machine-made ocean. It's just a, a brilliant account, that. And, he, and standing here and looking across the field from literally where he is looking with his field glasses, uh, it's very easy to, to imagine what he's seeing. Now, what happens next? Um, uh, and we've stopped now. Where this is literally where he, uh, where he, where I'm standing is where he took out those uh, those field glasses, and we're um, we're looking. And in fact, the enemy, as they're galloping towards him, almost it's the second squadron of the first guard dragoons, and they are actually uh, they carry lancers, uh, the German uh, a German unit. Now, what's here in the village, and he doesn't mention it in his account, uh, but he's about to, uh, in this part of his account anyway, is Lieutenant Colonel David Campbell, 
um, who was, uh, he's commanding the ninth uh, Lancers here. A very interesting chap, uh, supremely talented horseman, uh, amateur jockey, and he'd actually won the uh, the Grand National, a very famous horse race, in 1896. So this is a guy who knows horses very well. Well, He's not going to hang about, he's not even going to think about it really. He's with his headquarters group and uh, and uh, a small uh, small group, one of his troops uh, with him. So about 30 men, not, not very many more than 30 men. And uh, uh, he basically sees the Germans uh, uh, attacking and decides that he's going to immediately attack them. He quickly puts his machine gun out. He's got one machine gun. That's all he's got left from the retreat. He's ended, uh, ended up just with one machine gun. And he manages to put that out on, on the flank. Unfortunately, the machine gun doesn't, uh, doesn't operate. And the guy that's actually commanded that, called Le- uh, Lieutenant Frederick de Vere, uh, Alfroy, um, who is... Uh, who is in command of that section, he will actually be killed during the day. And and as an interesting account of his death, um, the machine gun jams, uh, the German report actually says that they got to the machine gun and disabled it. Uh, So we have two varying accounts here. But the machine gun jams uh, and and doesn't work. And so he's left a bit of a loose end because he's he's dismounted. And during the charge, which I'm going to describe in a minute, he sees the adjutant uh, get uh, taken off his horse by a a lance. And he runs out into the open to assist him and he's he's killed in in that act. So he's one of very very low casualties here only three so that gives you a clue this is a, a very small a small action but but yet a, an important one in in the sense of historic i suppose rather than important historic so lieutenant uh, alfie went out to uh, alfrey went out to a, to his assistance and uh, while he was trying to extract the lance uh, f- from the adjutant he was he was he was killed so we're standing now i've just moved uh, a little bit further forward from where uh, um, coleman was uh, watching with his glasses um and this is again uh, Coleman's account. Colonel Campbell, with about 30 men, charged at once at top speed. The Germans did not increase their pace to meet the shock and were completely overwhelmed. So this is interesting, isn't it? The German cavalry is also charging, but they're not at the full gallop. Uh, and the British cavalry hits them at, at the full gallop and effectively punches right, uh, right uh, through them. Uh, completely overwhelmed as far as the narrow front of the ninth lancers extended. Remembering this is 30 guys, this is 30 men charging with lancers uh, against about 130 uh, uh, German lancers coming directly at them. So they punch their way through uh, and loop round behind. And we can see where they loop. They were, were looking up a road. They're going to loop across the road, down into the valley, uh, around some trees, then back into the village again behind us. Um, the Germans don't follow, interestingly. So that was the action. Very famous action, punching through. It's going to leave three men dead. The adjutant will, will be killed. The colonel, Colonel Campbell, has been uh, dishorsed. So he's still on the on the battlefield with, uh, without his horse and he's been wounded. Um, and the Germans don't follow up because they're, con- they're concerned that it's a trick, that what they're trying to do is to draw them into the village and there will be machine guns or something hidden there so they don't follow up, which, which is good because there weren't any machine guns and uh, it would have been uh, a little bit tricky. Um, if you want to have a look at what this what's that action looked like, because it was famous at the time and still is famous, there's a, uh, an artist called Richard uh, Carton Woodville, and I have to say, in my youth, he was one of my favourite uh, military uh, uh, artists of uh, the Victorian period, late Victorian period, into the First World War, and he painted a, a fantastic painting of the of the action, so we get an idea of of what it was uh, what it was like. So we're going to carry on walking, and I'm off again. So we're going to walk. Um, it's now the 
the clouds have just cleared up and the sun's come out. So I'm walking right to the edge of the village and to the last houses. And on our right-hand side, we have a new plaque. And I have to say, um, this uh, is new to me. Last time I visited here, it wasn't here. So it gives you a clue because the uh, last time that I, I came to this site is because this was actually placed here in uh, 2014 on the centenary of the action. Uh, the British Army came here and they had a service. I think one of the royals was here, I believe, and they uh, they placed a plaque on the wall. So it's a very small, small plaque, and it's just indicating this, I suppose, that the, the, the this small action here is remembered for its importance. Last uh, lance on lance uh, action. Uh, we're then going to uh, the plaques just on our right, and I'm going to turn left, and we're immediately on, on the right-hand side. So we turn this, so we're running parallel to the, where the action's taking place. It's taking place on our right-hand side, and the village pond is here. It's described as the village pond, but it's actually, I, I suspect, more used for taking the runoff rainwater that's running down the roads uh, goes into here. So it's not not a quaint pond. It's a it's a rather industrial-looking pond, um, and here, sadly, we have. Uh, the, the second of the of the casualties was found here in the in the pond, and he was a shoeing smith. Uh, so shoeing smith Alfred John uh, Friend, that was his name, and uh, an interesting chap in a way because a shoeing smith. Would you expect him to be charging? Well, my grandfather was a shoeing smith in the First World War, and I don't recall him charging anybody. Um, uh, he wouldn't have actually focused <laughs> in the artillery. But as a as part of the lancers, it's uh, he's still his first job. He would be trained as a lancer. But normally he would be expected to be uh, to be shoeing the horses and to be with the headquarters group. But of course, the charge was partly the headquarters group, so it's going to include people like uh, like the the uh, the shoeing smith. Um, so he was sadly his body after the action was found uh, strangely. He was found in actually in in the in the pond in the village uh, in the village pond. Um, as I said, Lieutenant Colonel Campbell, the CO, he'd, uh, he was wounded and had to dismount. And he was found by the, uh, the medical officer of the 4th Dragoon Guards, another cavalry regiment. Um, and he's going to actually treat him on the, on the battlefield. And this is his, his description. He, he found him sprawled in the field of clover. And he treated him for a, a revolver wound in his leg, a lance wound in his shoulder, and a sword wound in his arm. And, uh, and I just love this comment. Despite this, this is this is him talking himself. Despite this, the colonel t uh, told the doctor, "I've just had the best quarter of an hour I've ever had in my life." And uh, I just found that, found that it may be apocryphal. I don't I don't know, but it's certainly written down in in some of the histories. So so I think that's great. You can imagine, you know, he's waited all his life to actually uh, this colonel to charge the enemy with his uh, with his lancers against enemy lancers and. Even though he's been speared in the shoulder, he's uh, been shot in the leg, and he's got a, a sword uh, uh, cut on his other arm, he's still pleased. Uh, best fifteen minutes uh, of his of his life. Um, we also get an account from uh, General Sir Henry de Beauvoir de uh, Lille, um, or Lissel, I'm not quite sure if he said that name, Lissel, I think we'll say. Um, he's the one that uh, Coleman's supposed to be driving, but he's obviously not driving him at the moment. And when he turns up, um, he reported that he, he came across one of Colonel Campbell's men trying to straighten his lance, which obviously has got bent in the, uh, in the action. Um, and uh, uh, and uh, he says to this chap, "Well, you got it uh, all uh, in all right." The general told him, and uh, this uh, this uh, this private answers, uh, "Yes, sir, right through him." The sergeant, oh, he's a sergeant. The sergeant replied, "And look, there's even blood on me." 
so <laughs> again we can see this is the start of the war where men have, have not uh, not all of them have experienced uh, any any kind of serious serious combat so another another proud man that's at last done his job uh, uh, with his with his lads so we've just uh, we've just walked beyond the pond, and if we look to the right, we are literally just looking very close as to where the action took place. This this small but in, important uh, action uh, in the field t- uh, to the right. Um, it's it's such a beautiful area. It's very hard because there's there never uh, never are going to be trenches or anything here. This is uh, this is why the the village itself is so beautiful. And like the villages on the Somme where I live, all been flattened and rebuilt in the 1920s. This is still houses going right the way back to the 1800s and before. So it's just uh, it's a beautiful sight and well worth just standing here and and soaking it in. It's now a lovely sunny uh, sunny afternoon. Um, so what I'm going to do now, I'm going to about uh, turn, and we're going to uh, head back out of the village, uh, down uh, the hill, um, and uh, and back into Fretoy itself, which is uh, a proper commune, even though it's, uh, as I say, only, only just got a hundred and twenty odd people. Um, but uh, here there there is a little village cemetery, and that's where I want to take us uh, next. Now it's going to take me about fifteen minutes to uh, uh, to get to get there. So what I'm going to do is we'll just turn the, the mic off for a minute, and so you don't have to walk with me and be be bored while we're while we're walking there. So uh, I'm just gonna. Just go over here. Okay, so just t- turn the mic off. Okay, here we are again. So uh, we've now uh, walked uh, into the village of, uh, of Fretoy and uh, we're walking through the village again. Again, these whitewashed walls, the lovely uh, stone, uh, stone-built uh uh, stone. So I keep saying it. Doesn't have done that twice now. Uh, the whitewashed walls of the houses and and stone uh, walls around them, uh, and um, uh, shutters and uh, little pantal roofs out the other side. And the cemetery is just uh, we're approaching the cemetery. Beautiful cemetery. Uh, one that uh, I went to straight away. I always head to the uh, the civilian cemeteries. It's not a military cemetery. Should have said that. This is not a CWGC cemetery. This is Commonwealth War Graves. This is the civil cemetery. So just go crossing, crossing the road. Make sure there's nobody coming. Um, up to the, uh, the metal gate. So open the gate. There we go. And uh, and into the cemetery. And uh, I know where they are. Um, obviously, I've been here before. Uh, but the first time I looked around, I couldn't spot them. Uh, top right-hand corner is where they are. So we're walking up to the top right-hand corner. And well, here we have just the three men that, that, that were killed. So they've just been put together in the, in this little cemetery. And I find it uh, very moving to actually that they're they're here. And uh, I have to say, when, uh, when normally when I get here, their graves are well looked after by the local people. Um, and uh, I normally, if there's any weeds, I always have a little weed myself to make sure that they're... Uh, that they're they're fine and they they look the part, um, and uh, here they are: Lieutenant Frederick De Vere Alfrey, Shewing Smith Alfred John Friend, and Private Arthur Tom Briar, uh, all all in the cemetery, all uh, side by side. Uh, what's slightly odd, and this is definitely a mistake by the Commonwealth War Graves, and I don't know don't know why it would be. 
but um, uh, the the officer, Lieutenant uh, Alfrey, has uh, the date of the seventh as his his death, and the Shewing Smith and uh, the sixth and Private uh, Briar the sixth, uh, they were all killed on the sixth. There was no doubt about it uh, that uh, Lieutenant Alfrey uh, was killed, but he's for some reason I don't we'll never know why. Um, I've had a look at his service file, and well, I've had a look at as much as I can. Commonwealth Wargraves files, and uh, there's nothing on there that indicates that that he would have died on the seventh. I think he was he was killed outright. Um, and um, here they here they they rest, and yeah, I'm, uh, I, I just find it moving that they're actually on the battlefield where they they fought and died very early on in the war in this uh, in uh, at this time. Um, I'm just going to just finish off by saying this. Uh, uh, and I, I, I found this in the book, and I think it's a, a very good point. Terrifying though it, uh, it may have been to face cavalry charges with lances in the age of the machine gun, the death knell had been sounded for such an outmoded form of warfare. A very famous chap called Captain Francis Grenfell of the Ninth Lancers uh, uh, says uh, he was a recipient of the Victoria Cross, uh, and he wrote this a few weeks after this action. I'm afraid all the cavalry traditions are forever ended, and we have become mounted infantry, pure and simple, with very little mounted about it. And uh, and I think that's a, a very good uh, a very good line. And as we know, there'll be very few times uh, for in the rest of the war that the cavalry will, will come into their own again, and they will act uh, very often as mounted uh, mounted infantry. In other words, they dismount from their horses and go into action as uh, as infantry. But so on this day, uh, the last time that l- lancers will charge lancers. So I think it's a it's a great day. Seventh of don't forget the date. Seventh of September, nineteen fourteen. Last time that German lancers and British lancers uh, will will clash uh, uh, during uh, during warfare. In fact, the lancers have not charged lancers uh, ever since. So I hope you've enjoyed it. Not particularly long podcast, but uh, an interesting one. Uh, look forward to uh, meeting you on the battlefield again soon. Uh, bye. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now, imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Thanks for listening to the podcast. If you would like to support the show, there's a couple of ways you can do it. Firstly, you can become a member. For a small monthly fee, you can subscribe to the show and listen to every episode ad-free. 
and also receive exclusive episodes directly from Pete and I. So see the link in the show notes to sign up at ACAST Plus and become a member of the show. Also, if you want to make a one-off contribution, you can now buy us a coffee. Visit buymeacoffee.com forward slash battlewalks and you can make a small contribution there. See you next week.